This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. About a year and a half ago, I think it was, I received an email from a publicist uh, encouraging me to think about uh, having this author on Common Threads here. And uh, she wrote a very short note saying that this woman, Mary Bly Howe, had written a book called A Baptist Among the Jews. And right away, I just... Oh, I had a mm, queasy feeling. I thought, oh, is this somebody who covertly joined a kibbutz in Israel? And (laughs) my imagination went wild, and I really thought it was going to be something that I didn't think was appropriate for the show. And, And please know, I'm not proud of this prejudiced mind that I had upon hearing that title. And so I wrote the uh, publicist back, and I said, ah, I don't think it would be a good fit for this show. And she says, no, 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 you, you have, don't know what you're talking about. You, this is something wholly different. This is a woman who is a Baptist who has been going to uh, um, Jewish functions and has been studying Judaism, and she has wonderful things to say about it. She's not out to be a missionary to the Jews or anything like that. And I said, okay, well, then that's a different story. Why don't you send me the book? She sent me the book. I liked the book. And we had Mary Bly Howe on, and we talked about that book, Baptist Among the Jews. As we uh, hung up off the air, she says, oh, by the way, I'm also, uh, I've started a book on the Sufis. I said, well, get back to me when that happens. And lo and behold, she did. I now have a copy of Sitting with Sufis, A Christian Experience of Learning Sufism. And uh, just to let you know that... Uh, Mary Bly Howe's book, A Baptist Among the Jews, has been featured on television. It's received a star review from Publishers Weekly and also Reviewer's Choice from the Dallas Morning News. Mary is a frequent speaker, and she also serves on the board of the Interfaith Center in Dallas. And so we welcome once again to the studios by the magic of the telephone, Mary Bly Howe. Hello, Mary. Hi. Thank you so much. You are more than welcome. Uh, glad to have you back. So, we, we probably should say, it, it's interesting because I do remember from our first interview way back when, uh, after reading your book, A Baptist Among the Jews, one of the questions that, that just obviously is going to come up with anybody who interviews you, you know, back then, would be, so, you know, are you going to convert to Judaism? And you were sort of noncommittal, if I recall correctly your answer, and yes. you seem to be very happy in your congregation. Um, but now I learn that you are, in fact, converting to Judaism. Tell us a little bit about that journey from oh. from being a, a Baptist who incorporated Jewish uh, thought and expression in your life to someone who finally decided, you know something, I'm a Jew. Well, the truth is that from the very moment I encountered Judaism, I fell madly in love with this religion 
it spoke to me in so many different ways. Um, I loved its rituals. I loved its tradition. Um, and very briefly, I, I just felt God in a way that I had never felt God before. Um, however, at that time, which was about 10 years ago, um, I had rarely, if ever, been outside of a Baptist church. I was going to a moderately aligned Baptist church, though, so, um, and that was how I, I um, got involved in Judaism, was through an interfaith um, event with my church. What's, a, what's with, a moderately aligned Baptist? A moderately aligned Baptist church, there are at least two. One of them is a cooperative Baptist fellowship, and the other is the American Baptist. Um, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is the group, and it's very, very large, and um, uh, it's a national organization now. They are the ones that have pulled away from the Southern Baptists. Some of them have done this, uh, taken a vote, and actually removed themselves from the Southern Baptist Convention because of their proselytizing, um, their... Um, uh, bad attitudes towards gays and lesbians, um, uh, you know, many, a, a lot of different reasons. Um, their, their more literal approach to the Bible, um, things like that. So um, a lot of Baptists uh, have, uh, a lot of Baptist churches have pulled out of the convention and aligned in a more uh, theologically moderate uh, manner. Okay. So, at any rate, and and also because I was going to one of these churches, that would that's the only reason that I was at an interfaith event um, in a more conservative Baptist church. You do not see that type of um, that type of event. Conservative Baptists typically are not going to want to sit down and converse with Jews and people of other religions just to learn. They're going to want to sit down and convert them. So at any rate, um, that was my, um, my first encounter with Judaism. And I fought it for 10 years uh, for a couple of reasons. Well, for several reasons. Initially, I still had some conservative beliefs myself. And I... I um, just didn't feel like I could become a Jew because of that. That was the main thing. Um, and you're right, as you said earlier, um, I loved my church very, very much. Um, and I still loved it very, very much when I left. And um, so finally, at after 10 years of fighting this, I, I went to uh, liberal churches. I got involved in... Um, in Sufism, which um, I still do love very much. Um, and I did everything in my power to try to avoid converting to Judaism. But in the end, um, you know, I could tell you the long version, but let me just tell you briefly that what happened in my heart is the same thing that happened when you think about trying to be friends with somebody that you're in love with. And that's what I had been doing for 10 years. I had been friends with Judaism while 
remaining married to Christianity, so to speak, and that just was not going to work any longer. So um, I decided uh, that it was time to take the plunge, and um, so I am. My conversion will be in a week. Well, congratulations! Thank you. Now, so much. the the church that you were in. Yes. When you wrote the book, Baptist Among the Jews, yes. is that the church that you left, uh, 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 you know, did you go right from there to Judaism? Yes. And, and, and no, uh, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, <laughs> I was going to ask, uh, how was their reaction, your, your fellow congregants? It was very mixed, both on the part of the different people and on the part of... Um, in the individuals themselves. Um, when I left, I was still so involved in my church that I chaired the largest committee. I was the outreach leader for my Sunday school class, and that doesn't mean evangelizing or proselytizing. That means greeting visitors and making sure that new people feel welcome. Um, and um, the... Um, the biggest thing was I was a faith partner to one of our pastoral interns. Um, those were the three main positions I held. And then I did numerous other uh, ministries in the church, pretty much anything that I was asked to do. Uh, I was there virtually every week. Um, my life was centered in that church. So when I left... Um, because everybody knew how much I loved Judaism, and they knew that I had remained very, very involved all these uh, for these ten years, um, and so I went in, and I think it was very flippant with it. Um, I I think that looking back, that I just assumed that because they knew how much I loved Judaism, that they would have expected this um, wrong. <laughs> they did not expect this at all. And so when I um, announced it to my Sunday school class, they gasped. Uh, my pastor took it fine initially, but then I got an email from him several days later that um, he was, I believe the way he put it was, I'm just now catching my breath over this. Um, I had assumed that probably about 70 people that I had been in Sunday school with and that I knew uh, very well that I hung out with, that they would all be at my conversion. Um, there are probably going to be 10 or 12 people coming. Um, one, of, one of the ministers is coming. Um, nobody was mean to me. Nobody was hateful. And in, in their defense, um, I, I believe that there was so much shock and so much hurt at losing somebody that was so active. And I think also that they probably have just been in denial all of these years, that they, they did know how much I loved Judaism, but that they would have never allowed the thought to enter their mind that, that, would have act, that I would have actually denied all of the... the um, doctrines and tenets of Orthodox Christianity to become a Jew. I don't think that they would just, they just simply would not have entertained that thought. 
Um, so, so this this response is a little bit different than if you decided you just wanted to be a Lutheran. Oh yes, but again, in fairness to them, were I to leave Judaism, um, nobody at my synagogue is going to come to my conversion back to Christianity. So, you know, at first I was really, really angry that they were not coming. Um, now I understand that. Religion is a really powerful thing, and you do not want to lose somebody, uh, no matter how much you love them, and um, no matter how much you want them to be happy, it still really, really hurts to lose somebody that has been such an integral part of your religious community. It just hurts. Um, With that said, I do have to tell you one response that was one of the most beautiful that I received. And um, I feared telling the older people because I thought they were going to take it the hardest, and I chaired the Homebound Committee. So I wrote letters to them. Without exception, every one of these people wrote me back or called me and said the most beautiful things. But the most lovely was a lady that had called, and she's 90 years old. And I could tell she was pretty shaken that I was converting to Judaism. Um, but um, I, I, my reply to her was, Estelle, I realize that this is very difficult for you or for anyone who believes that Jesus is the only way to God. And before I could continue, she interrupted me and she said, Honey, you let me tell you what I believe. I believe in you. And that was the end of the story. So I am, you know, there were people there that had just been so loving. And there are a lot of people that um, that are really genuinely excited for me. They really do want me to be in the place where I find God. And no one accused you of converting to Judaism simply for the humor? No. <laughs> No, not not anybody accused me of that. Did, did you ever see that Seinfeld episode? No. Oh, there's I a did great not. there's a great episode where a dentist uh, converts to Christ, uh, Excuse me, to Judaism, and uh-huh. Jerry is just so upset because he knows he only did it so he, he could involve himself with the humor and tell the jokes and and all of that. <laughs> so that didn't happen to you. Okay, no. well then. Oh, I guess that's probably similar to joining a mega church for business, right? Right, exactly, exactly. And, and uh, through which uh, branch of Judaism are you converting? Reform, which is the most liberal. Right, right. Okay. Well, listen, I, I do have to stop for just a moment to remind people that they are listening to Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. My name is Fred Stella, and our guest today is Mary Bly Howe, and we, we're actually not talking about her, about her book right at the moment, but very soon we will uh, start with Sitting with Sufis, A Christian Experience of Learning Sufism. Uh, so, Mary, now tell us about this in-between period. Uh, you... You were a Christian who investigated Judaism. Yes. Then you became a Christian who investigated Sufism. And am I, am I, is that a fair way to put it? Well, I was involved in all three at the right, same time. Right, yes. Oh, 
always at the same time? I yes. thought I thought Judaism came first and then and then Sufism. No, oh. you're right. I'm sorry, but when I when I started investigating Sufism, I was still involved. I remained involved in Judaism. Right. Oh, yeah. That's that's quite okay. clear in the book. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. okay. Uh, and now you are converting to Judaism, um, and. Uh, are you keeping any of the Sufi practices, or where does that where is that now in your life? Um, I I know it's it's very different now. Um, when I became involved in Sufism, and I I think I would like to back up a little bit before I answer your question because I I do still love Sufism and I do very much still feel a bond with my teacher. And there are certain practices that in Judaism, um, you're not going to see in traditional Judaism, but I've kind of incorporated um, some of the, the movements and the way that the Sufis do chants, that I've incorporated that into uh, my morning meditation. But, but typically, um, I... Um, you know, I used to go every single week um, to meet with a group of Sufis, and um, I no longer do that. And I also used to um, practice each morning um, various Sufi chants, and I no longer do that. Um, although, again, um, part of the, I guess you would call it the methodology of Sufism, um, I, I have incorporated into um, my morning, um, and I do still feel a great bond with my teacher. I have not had an opportunity to see him in quite some time. He lives in North Carolina, and I live in Texas. Um, but if I have an opportunity to see him, I certainly will. And. Um, and the other thing is, Sufism is not simply just something that you practice. It is really something that you become. And in that, I mean that um, it, it changes your life. I became a mystic through Sufism. Um, that didn't stop when I became a Jew or as I am becoming a Jew. Um, that that's something that will always be with me. Um, I will always, in a sense, be a Sufi, uh, just because um, um, all of the things that Sufism taught me and all of the ways that it changed me um, are permanent. Mm -hmm. So does that answer your question? It does. It certainly does. Oh, well, I must say that even with your conversion to Judaism, I think that the book is worthwhile for people who have any interest in in studying Sufism, and especially uh, people who are Christian who yes. uh, have an interest in Sufism. Now, here's a question that gets asked all the time. Uh, do you have to be a Muslim to be a Sufi? And if not... Why? Because I know, before you answer, I know many Muslims uh, are, are, are somewhat um, insulted by the way that Sufism has been uh, uh, extricated from Islam. Could you speak yes. to that? 
Yes. Um, I also know many Muslims who um, do not like the fact that other people are practicing their uh, the, the mystical tradition that grew out of their religion. I understand that much better now um, as I watch Madonna and uh, Britney Spears um, wear their, you know, little um, talismans and, and other items that have to do with Kabbalah um, because I believe that uh, Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism needs to be practiced within Judaism. So I understand that much better now. However, to be fair to the universal Sufis, from what I've seen, the, the um, branches of Sufism who initiate people who are not Muslim take this far, vastly more serious than anybody that I have ever seen outside of Judaism taking Kabbalah. Um, now, wait, they, wait, wait, before you, you, you knock Brittany, have you ever heard her speak Yiddish? No. Oh, my, oh, <laughs> okay, n- never mind. <laughs> no, you go ahead, go ahead. Oh, um, so the, the people that, that I know that practice Sufism, for the most part, um, I was probably the only person out of, oh, goodness, I mean, I met hundreds of Sufis. I was probably the only one who was actually practicing Sufism within my religion. Pretty much everybody else had chosen Sufism as their primary path. And in my particular order, which is the Rafai Marufi order, um, we we do have an Islamic teacher. However, he doesn't go to mosque. Um, he's from Turkey, um, so if you've ever been to Turkey, you'll understand that it is an entirely different culture, and the Muslims there are much more liberal. So, for instance, you can't even sit in a restaurant um, without having... Um, and then what it's called just, just slipped my mind, but the the pipe that you pass around to smoke, even while you're eating, you're smoking. Um, alcohol is uh, not seen as a great sin in Turkey. So in this particular order, you're going to have a lot more of a liberal attitude. Um, Sharif Baba, who uh, initiated me, into Sufism um, is one of the two people that I have met in my entire life who I felt um, when I met him and all the years that I've known him that he was the type of that he was a person that has really traveled all of these levels and united with God and come back to earth a divine person. He is incredible. Um, And because of this, he deeply understood that um, there are, uh, that, that we all share a unity and a bond that's beyond religion. And this is what mysticism teaches us. And 
So um, in in the Rafai Marufi order, which he leads, um, he does have Muslim students. He does revere Muhammad. Um, a lot of the the chants um, have Muhammad's name in them, um, but typically. Uh, the majority of his followers have not converted to Islam and they don't embrace Islam as a religion. Um, and there are also other orders, and I'm finding out that there are more and more. I had no idea how, how many there actual, actually are in this country and probably in other countries too, um, where the, the teachers are um, not Muslim. Uh, and they are just simply universal orders. They take the practices and the rituals and the chants and the philosophy of Sufism, and they have communities, and they live it to the fullest. Um, so so that's, that's your answer. Muslims are not going to like these universal orders, but they do exist, and they are growing, and there are a lot of them. When you were studying with your teacher. Did the Quran play any part of that? Are you more familiar with the Quran now than, than you were before? Or, or, or is vaguely, that Vaguely. Very vaguely. Um, uh, Sharif Baba did quote from the... He did tell stories and he did quote from the Quran occasionally, but he quoted from the Bible just as often. Um... And, you know, he realized that the majority of the people that were following him had Christian backgrounds, and so I think that that had a lot to do with it. He would, um, he would tell stories and talk about things that we could best relate to. Um, he probably talked ten times more about Jesus than he did about Muhammad, um, just because he understood the people that were following him. Um, so, you know, to answer your question, no, I know very little about the Quran. I did buy three copies of it, and um, I did read little bits of it, but um, I never got very far. It, it just wasn't a really important part of our spiritual practices. I was interested in your book, you talk about your, your uh, journey to Turkey. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about that, uh, uh, how you ended up getting there and what your impressions were? It was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Um, I went with um, all dervishes, which is another name for a Sufi, um, and I went with my teacher, Sharif Baba. He speaks uh, very little English, in fact, uh, um, and he has a translator that travels with him full-time. So Sharif Baba never uh, communicates, he never teaches in English. He knows enough to carry on just a tiny bit. So um, his culture is definitely enmeshed in Turkey. And several of the people that went with us um, either were from Turkey or had been to Turkey with him um, many times. Um, we traveled all over Turkey. We did have an opportunity on occasion just to do some sightseeing and to do the Turkish baths and um, to see the, the, the mosques and different things. 
but our primary time, uh, virtually all of our time, was spent going to um, various meeting, Sufi meeting places and um, places. Uh, graves are a big thing, and they're actually a big thing in all religions. Um, there, there's something <clears throat> that people see um, when, a, when a holy person is uh, buried somewhere. I mean, you see this in the Native American religion, in Judaism and Christianity. And, I mean, it, it, you see this in all religions, uh, or virtually all religions. So we spend a lot of time um, going to holy graves and just going in quietly. Um, sometimes we would sit together and chant, but we had to be very careful because Sufism is illegal in Turkey. Um, they don't come down real hard on you, and particularly if they know it's an American group, you know, it's not like the police are going to rush in and drag us all off to jail. Um, but, um, you know, we would never... Um, uh, we would never do this real openly that, um, or gather in huge groups. I would imagine that's very surprising to a lot of people because in last week's show we talked about how, what a liberal and open society Turkey was, and I know that in the Muslim world it's sort of held up on a pedestal as being, boy, this is what this is what the the Arabs uh, can be. Yes. Um, that's true, and I, I'm going to answer this question very carefully because I'm not quite sure of my facts. I can only tell you what what other people have told me, um, and that is the fact that Turkey is controlled by a secular government, so they do not want to be seen as a country that is controlled by uh, religion. And because... Rumi, who is Sufism's most well-known poet, and um, a recent article in Harper's Magazine said he's actually America's best-selling poet. Um, there are many, many Sufi saints who are buried in Sufism in uh, Turkey, and um, there are still a lot of uh, a lot of meeting places where. Sufis practice quietly, um, inobtrusively. Um, so from what I've been told, um, and from what we can obviously see, if we know anything about world affairs, is that um, certain religions, and partic particularly in Islamic countries, um, they can be very, very controlling and very repressive. And even though Sufism uh, would never be a repressive religion, um, Sufis don't even consider themselves to be practicing a religion, that's still a threat to a secular government. So that's the reason, um, that's what I've been told. Yeah, I, I was going to say, that's uh, of all of the... the kinds of people that they would consider threatening the Sufis? <laughs> yeah. 
Right. You know, they're not Wahhabis for crying out loud. Exactly. My goodness. Uh, one other question I was curious about. You mentioned in your book the Turkish language. Now, I thought in Turkey they spoke Arabic, but they, they simply used uh, Roman letters. Is that not correct? Oh, my. You're asking a question that I... Uh that I don't know. I do know that my teacher speaks Turkish, and I know that when he does speak Arabic, that it is a uh, it is a slightly different dialect. But he definitely speaks Turkish. So there is a language called Turkish. Yes. Okay. Okay. I, I do know that. I have a couple of Turkish dictionaries. So okay. yes, there is a Turkish language. All right. I I thought they spoke Arabic. I'm I'm assuming they a lot of people probably understand it there. Did do, do you know that? Do you know if they if there's an understanding of Arabic in in Turkey? I really don't know. I, and you know, and I I said that I don't know about what language the people speak there. They they do speak Turkish. Okay. Uh, because everywhere we went, um, Sharif Baba and Jim, his interpreter, um, would communicate with the people in Turkish. That oh. is the language there. Well, thank you for enlightening me there. Yeah. Um, talking about mystics, I know that, uh, and I hear this uh, criticism, and you've probably gotten it before too, that uh, people tend to think of people, other people who are in mystical traditions, as kind of self absorbed baby boomers, maybe with a little too much time on their hands. <laughs> Uh, uh, again, self-indulgent. Um, there's a part in your book where you talk about how mystics are not really supposed to sequester themselves from the rest of the world, but yes. to be a part of the world and to, to help bring about a more enlightened society, etc., etc. But now, I must say this. If I took out the yellow pages and I called every faith-based social service, uh, the food banks, the soup kitchens, all of them. I called all of them and I said, yes, I'd like to speak to a mystic, please. <laughs> I don't know how many, how many people I'd be talking to there. Yeah. Um, what, what is your take on that? What, what do you see when you gather together with your, your fellow mystics, be they Sufis, be they Kabbalists, or, or Christian mystics, or yogis, or whomever you hang out with on Wednesday nights, whatever it is? Okay. Yeah, that, that's a big question. Um, I, I probably will have to answer this in several parts. Um, first of all, just starting from your last question, Typically, even though mystics are, um, you know, we gather in a group, my Wednesday night Sufi group usually consisted of three to six people. This is hardly enough people to go out and organize um, a big uh, food bank, you know, or a food drive. Um, we did do little things together occasionally, but for most of us, um, or, or let me just speak for myself. Um, when I was involved both in Sufism and my church, I had a lot more opportunities just because, you know, what's the um, percentage? I believe it's like 80% of this country is Christian. So the vast majority of the, um, the organized um, homeless shelters and... Uh, food banks and things like this 
um, are going to be run by Christians. And in fact, Temple Emmanuel, the my synagogue now, um, uh, many of the times that we get together and um, have a food drive and and go in and you know help unpack and help put food into uh, the cabinets for the homeless or for the hungry or uh, for impoverished people. Um, typically, we're either doing that at a Christian organization or an interfaith organization. Um, and again, it's not, it's just simply because, um, it, you know, Jews are such a tiny number, uh, they, they're a tiny minority of the population. So, um, you know, you're not going to call a place and say, may I speak, uh, you're not going to find a food bank that, um, well, I, I shouldn't say you're not going to find one. You're not going to find a lot of food banks just run by mystics. Um, mysticism, again, is not a religion. It's a spiritual practice. And um, so a lot of us find outlets in other ways. You know, we're not going to gather as a group. We're not going to say, okay, here's a group of mystics that, um, you know, we're going to go down and rent a warehouse. Um, We don't have enough of us here to even afford to do that. So, you know, we're going to find outlets to to, uh, heal the world, help heal the world and to feed the hungry and, um, you know, to, to do social justice work um, through other organizations. Mm-hmm. That's, and, and that is something that you see as being really promoted within the mystic communities that you've been connected with? I wouldn't really say that it is promoted within mysticism because mystics are ex- extremely careful about anything creedal or any even using the word you need to do this or you ought to do this or this is a part of what we do um mysticism um in in my experience um i've had a number of mystical experiences and I remember one time I had um, an incredible mystical experience in the Rocky Mountains while doing a practice that was given to me by a very renowned and very beloved rabbi Um, he's one of the um, the two that I mentioned on last week's show that when I'm in his presence, I just know that he has gone through all these levels. He's united with God, and he's come back a divine person. Um, At any rate, he gave me a practice, and I actually tried to duplicate it because it was so powerful. It was, I was in such an ecstatic, um, incredible state of peace and joy that, um, you know, I I didn't want to leave that. And so as it started waning, I went to another place and I lay down on the grass and I tried to duplicate the experience and it just wouldn't happen again. And what that taught me was 
that when I looked back on the other mystical experiences that I had had, what what happened was I had this wonderful ecstatic feeling, but it changed my life forever. The purpose of these ecstatic mystical experience is not for us to feel good they do feel good Um, they feel incredibly good but that is not why they're given to us they're given to us to bring us to an entirely new level of consciousness and every time this has happened to me there has been a tangible result in my life that has never gone away um, years later, I can um, I can not only remember the experience that I had vividly, but I can remember exactly what it did to me, how it changed me, and I can look at my life at this very moment and um, and see how it's continuing to grow and to build and to expand in my life, and inevitably. Um, that makes me more engaged with the world in various ways. I mean, each experience is going to be different, but, you know, it does engage me with the world. It makes me more compassionate. It makes me um, want to, um, you know, I've discovered after one of my last experiences I've been involved in um, working with the homebound for many, many years, nearly 30 years, in fact. Um, It's my greatest love. I have loved the elderly since I can remember, since I was two or three years old. And, um, And I've worked with them since my very, very early adult years. And I noticed after one of my last experiences that, um, I was not quite in such a rush when I was with them that I was really enjoying them more deeply. And I've always enjoyed being with them, but there was just this, there was just a, um, there was a change in, um, in the way I was with them. I was with them in a deeper way. Um, I, I um, was not looking at my watch to say, okay, you know, my 30-minute visit is over. I could, I could sit and listen deeply to them, and I found that I could feel, you know, if they were in pain in any way, I could feel that more deeply. Um, so, you know, mystical experiences, um, they, they, um, they feel good, but that's not their purpose, and we don't have them. Most of us do not have them very often. If you're just joining us, you're listening to WGVU. My name is Fred Stella. The program is Common Threads. My guest today is Mary Bly Howe, and we're talking about her book, Sitting with Sufis, A Christian Experience of Learning Sufism. Um, In your chapter on climbing the mystic's ladder, you talk about the four levels of interpreting Scripture from a a, a Kabbalah standpoint, and I'm sure that this... Uh, is also shared in Sufism. Uh, but you name the four levels, but unless I'm missing something here, you only define two. You've got the literal translation and then um, the very last one. Uh, Absolutely. Yes, that, that's the very deepest. What's in between those? Uh, emotional and intellect. 
um, and and um, to define those as far as um, interpretation, you are looking when you're looking at scripture. Um, and no, you don't see that they they do not have this in Sufism. They have levels that you um, that you walk through as far as uniting with God, but they don't have levels that you're reading scripture on. So no, that's not a Sufi thing. Um, but in in Judaism, and I hope I'm not getting the two middle ones um, uh, turned around because I can't remember the precise order. But you have a literal translation where you are um, uh, not necessarily that you're taking this literally, but that you are just reading the text and comprehending what it's saying on a surface level. That's probably a much better word, surface rather than literal. Um, And then you are um, interpreting um, this particular passage. And then there is a level that is called Midrash. So you're looking you're looking at it maybe metaphorically, you're looking for stories in it. Um, you are you're looking for uh, a deeper meaning. And then the last level, um, it's either called sod, which is secret. Um, that's the interpretive level, um, or the world of absolute. They're the one and the same. And that's when you move into a mystical realm. And in Kabbalistic circles, they sometimes believe that this is only reserved for people who um, have either um, studied this for a long time or have been mystics for a long time um, or who have mastered these lower levels that you can move into this secret level of interpretation and Hasidic Jews actually believe that um, there were three sets of 40 days um, and more liberal Jews like to play with this in a metaphorical way so um, the first 40 days on Mount Sinai Moses was given the Torah and the second 40 days Moses was given um, the oral Torah which is the Mishnah um, and then the next 40 days, Moses was given all of the mystical teachings. So, again, this is why um, mysticism is so tied into a religion, uh, because it's the interpretation of that religion, you know, or that religion's book. Sure. You have a, a chapter on finding a spiritual guide. Uh, How important uh, is that in Sufism? And I must say that in the uh, the mystical, the Western mystical traditions, or the New Thought tradition, or the New Age, whatever you want to call it, teachers are, or gurus, if you will, are always sort of held at arm's length. I mean, we're, uh, we're such rugged individualists, and I can find God on my own. I don't need somebody. I don't need an intermediary. You know, that's why I left Christianity, because I didn't need this, a church or a savior. Uh, how, how do you respond to that? 
Um, in Sufism and in most mystical traditions, including um, some parts of uh, some branches of Buddhism and Hinduism and um, uh, Judaism and Sufism, in the more liturgical branches of Christianity, a guide is absolutely essential. And a guide is not somebody that is telling you what to do. Um, they are not, um, they're not somebody that you call and say, gee, I just can't make this decision today. Um, it does not take your individuality away whatsoever. In fact, it enhances your individuality. Um, the, the, the important thing is that you find an authentic guide. And if you're intuitive, um, that's going to be a very easy task. If you're not intuitive, then the best thing is to spend some time asking about this person, looking into this person's life. Um, how long have they been around? Talk to their students. Um, spend time with their students and, um, you know, do some investigating. Um, there are certainly bad teachers out there, so I, I think we do have to be careful. Um, but, but typically, a guide is there to bring what's already in you out. Um, so, for instance, in Sufism, we have a practice that is called, um, and it, this is a, a Turkish pronunciation, it's called Safbet. And this is where we sit with our teacher, and the teacher tells stories and um, gives parables and, um, and then just talks about uh, whatever comes to his or her mind. And, um, and the idea is not um, to, uh, to learn these lessons intellectually. The idea is to soak up the spirit of the guide. Um, I know that I, you know, I rarely see my teacher. Um, and I now have a, um, uh, a mystical rabbi who is a guide who I also rarely see and talk to but I have such a connection with them that just cannot be explained on an intellectual level they're not around here telling me what to do um, but as I look at their lives and I read their teachings and um, and I talk to them there is something in me that craves to emulate them um, and then the other purpose of a guide is that they sense what level you're on and it's very difficult for us to know ourselves and it's, and it's very difficult for us to um, to see not only our faults but to see um, oh, how would I put this um, it, it's difficult for us to, to just simply see at 
to see the level of spirituality that we're at. And so um, an authentic guide is going to sense where you as an individual are in your quest to be reunited with the divine. Um, and they will give you practices according to the level that you're on. So um, those are really the two primary functions of having a guide. Um, and I greatly value um, being able to call my teacher and say, you know, this spiritual practice is really working in a powerful way for me. Um, and, you know, they may say, then just go deeper, go more deeply into this practice. Or they may say, um, here's another practice that will take you even more deeply into it. Or, uh, um, you know, I may call my one of my teachers and say, this practice is not working for me. And, um, you know, and they'll give me advice on that. So um, that's that's the purpose of a guide and there's certainly nothing to be afraid of as far as um, having somebody control you or even attempt to control you that just does not happen well mary unfortunately we're down to the wire here with time i uh, certainly wish you the very best on your conversion experience thank you so much certainly uh mary bly howe has been our guest her book, Sitting with Sufis, A Christian Experience of Learning Sufism, is on sale now. And we want to thank you for joining us. You're listening to WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Please join us again for another edition of Common Threads next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.